Question to start out this morning. Have you ever, have you ever been disappointed by somebody in leadership? Why are you laughing? It could have been a manager at your job that you thought made a bad choice, let somebody go when they shouldn't have, or maybe even let you go when they shouldn't have. Perhaps it's a leader in your house, whether it was your parents growing up and lording their parental um, command to take care of you, but instead it wasn't care, it was drill instruction. I couldn't think of a better word. Perhaps for you it has been a leader both either in the community or in a place of government. Someone made a choice that you have to deal with the effects of it and you didn't much like that. Perhaps it was even somebody in church leadership. Somebody who stood in a place very similar to the one I stand in now, told you what you're supposed to do with your life and through a revelation of facts about their lives, you realize they were not doing what they were telling you to do. It's somewhat comedic to ask, have we ever been disappointed by someone in leadership? Because we live in a place, in a culture that naturally, very naturally distrusts forms or individuals in an institutional leadership role. We distrust them. We distrust them because we've been burned by it one too many times. For some of us, not one too many times, way too many times. We, perhaps some of us might even say, if I was there, I could, I could do a better job. And we all have our own opinions of what an ideal leader should look like, right? Because the thing is about leaders is we don't like them, but we kind of need them in some way. Someone's got to fill the seat. Someone's got to do the job. Someone's got to make things happen. So you kind of, it's a necessary evil in some people's minds, in many people's minds. And so we say, well, what am I looking for in an ideal leader? Perhaps you may value strength in an ideal leader. Someone who's strong, driven, passionate. Perhaps you may value intelligence in an ideal leader. They're smart. They're clever. We all have our own values that we put, project, and what we wish our leaders would have. But what are the necessary characteristics and qualifications of leaders. Because while it's subjective, at the same time, I would make the claim that Scripture, that the Bible, gives us great wisdom of what kind of leaders we should be looking for, both in our world, in our communities, and in our churches. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to go to a passage of Scripture, and we're going to look at a number of different characteristics of an ideal leader. And I think through understanding these characteristics of the leader found in this passage, it can help us understand both what leaders we should be looking for to help lead and guide us, but also how we as individuals can lead others. I forget who said it, but there was a really smart guy that said, everybody is a leader in their own way. You all have influence in where you are. Whether you're an employee, whether you're a boss, 
whether you're retired, whether you're a student, whether you're a parent, you have your own opportunity to be a leader and to lead and influence others. And so it's easy to hear a sermon like this on leadership and say, well, those guys need to get this down. No, you need to as well. We need to as well. We are all leaders, and we all have room to grow in this. So, without further ado, the place that we're going to do, go to to find this, Pastor John already mentioned it, Psalm 72. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 72. And while you're turning there, allow me to catch you up a little bit on where we've been going in this last, this, the beginning of this year. We've been studying through different genres in the book of Psalms. We've been studying through, we've made it through a couple of different specifically. We started out in a psalm of Torah where we talked about the wisdom of God's word instructing us and guiding us through life. We then switched from that to the psalms of lament where we heard the infinite blessings and promises from God in his word and we compare that to the unsatisfactory nature of this world and we wrestle with both of those facts. That's a psalm of lament. And then here in Psalm 72, allow me to introduce you to a new genre, another genre of psalms. This is what is known as a royal psalm, a royal psalm. More than likely, the individuals who wrote this did not call it a royal psalm, but it is a a title that Christians and scholars have put onto it in a way to help categorize different aspects and parts of the psalm. And so we are going to be looking at a royal psalm. What's a royal psalm? Well, a royal psalm focuses on the most important leader in ancient Israel. The most important leader in ancient Israel. You guessed it. It's the king. The king of Israel was the centerpiece, was the most important institutionalized leader in ancient Israel. Scripture shows us that when there was a good king in the nation of Israel, the nation would prosper, that good things would be happening, that the peoples would be in a place of of safety and of growth, both in a physical aspect of their nation and in a spiritual aspect in their connectedness to God. On the flip side, when there was a bad king, the nation, many ways, slowly would crumble piece by piece, God's people would turn away from him and worship foreign gods instead of the true God, Yahweh. The nation at many times would be invaded by foreign powers and be ransacked and attacked and people would be killed as a result of which. And so the health and well-being of ancient Israel many different times depended on the health and well-being of the king. And so, as a result, many individuals would pray for their king. That makes sense. Many of us might pray for our leaders for the United States and around the world. And so it makes sense to naturally think and to say, well, they should have prayed for their leaders just in the same way that many Christians today pray for their leaders. And so that is what we're looking at here in Psalm 72, is this is a prayer for a king. This is a prayer for God to guide a king. But the interesting about the thing about the prayer is the individual who's praying it. Psalm 72 is known as a psalm of Solomon. 
a psalm of Solomon. For those of you who recall Solomon, you know his story. But for those of you who may not know who Solomon is, allow me to bring you up to speed. Solomon was the son of King David, who brought the the kingdom together, united the kingdom, was the man after God's own heart, was a good king. And then Solomon is sitting there in the shadow of this mighty reign of his father, David, and in desperation, prays to God and asks for wisdom to guide God's people. And so God grants it. Solomon is known as the wise king. Solomon is known as a man that was able to build Israel from a place of good to a place of great, that brought Israel into what we might call today as a golden age under his reign. The scriptures tell us that pieces of money in Solomon's reign were as common as the rocks on the ground. It was a very wealthy nation. It was a very influential nation. It was a very powerful nation. It was a very safe nation. There wasn't war in the time of Solomon's reign. At least scripture doesn't highlight it. It was a time of amazing peace, amazing prosperity, amazing success, amazing wealth, amazing influence. And here Solomon is praying for the king. Solomon did a great job. But he also had his flaws. And what we get from this isn't a king that has flaws, but we get from Psalm 72 this ideal king, this perfect king. And while Solomon was praying for himself, there's also a sense in this is that he was praying for something more, someone who was a greater king than he could ever be. And so, Without further ado, let's jump into this passage and let's look at a couple of different characteristics for an ideal leader. The first characteristic is going to be found in the first part of Psalm 72. Please read with me Psalm 72, verses 1 through 4. Please read with me. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Now, I asked before, what's your ideal characteristic in leadership? If you were to start If you were to put yourself in Solomon's shoes, what would be the first thing you mention about Solomon? If you want this perfect king, this perfect leader, what would be the first thing you wish they had? You could ask for wisdom. Yes, we all have these different ideas, and we could have, perhaps some of us might say, well, he needs good strategy. He needs to have his his ability to know how to govern the nation, how to guide his people. But Solomon doesn't go to skill in this. Solomon goes to issue of character. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The phrases, the words justice and righteousness in the Old Testament work very similarly together. They're, they're synonymous with each other. They're very similar words. And we might say, well, why is justice so important for a king? Well, we have to remember 
that in this day, there was a very different way you ran a nation than how the United States runs its nation today. There was no checks and balances. There was no different branches of government. There was a king. And so in many different ways, specifically related to the topic of justice, the king of the ancient times, and this was true of many cultures surrounding Israel, is that the king many ways served as the justice system. The king was the justice system. You might recall a story in 1 Kings where Solomon was approached by by two women arguing over whether or not a, a baby was one of theirs. Why did they go to Solomon? Because they knew that he was the ultimate authority in their land. He knew that he was the ultimate justice system in their land. In many ways, he, would have, he could have instituted different you know, justices or people to help work on different cases. But in many ways, Solomon, or the king, was what we might compare to a supreme court. The highest court in the land. The final word of justice for his people. And so we see the emphasis of justice and righteousness, the necessity for this king to carry this this character quality, quality of fairness and equality for all peoples. All peoples under his rule are to be treated at the same equal level. I think that's something that many people can agree with. I think that's something that most people should agree with is that this king is not to use his power to be an oppressor, but instead to crush oppressors. As long as there has been leadership positions, there have been people that have filled those positions and used their influence and their power for the wrong reasons. Some do it for money, some do it for influence, some do it for power, It's hard to necessarily figure out who does it for what reason, but the truth that we have is that leaders have a special and unique temptation to fall into in which they can control the people that they have been called to lead and treat with fairness, to oppress people, to use people for their own selfish advantage. Allow me to share with you a silly example of a leader using their power for selfish gain. A couple years ago when I was in college, I took a summer to be a camp counselor at Camp Barakel. It was a great great time, great, wonderful summer, one of the best summers of my life. Those of you that don't know about Camp Barakel, you should. It's great. This Friday, the students are going, and it's going to be awesome. Definitely sign up for it if you're a student. And I served that summer as a camp counselor. My job was I was given a specific amount of teenagers, and I was told to be their chaperone throughout the week, basically. I would follow them through different activities. I would follow them to campouts. I would take them around to chapel. I'd run around and make sure that none of them were killing each other. It was a whole big thing. It was great. And at the same time, I'm following with them to their chapel services, to their Bible studies, and I am sort of this chaperone but also spiritual leader for them. I'm their boss for that week. I'm their boss. I'm their manager. I'm their tour guide, for lack of a better term. And I remember one time, there was a group of campers that I had. They had a time of what was called free time. You could go out, go boating, swimming, 
riflery, archery, whatever. Well, there's also a camp store, and they could go to the camp store and buy candy and sodas and ice cream and all sorts of good stuff. And there was a number of my campers who went to the trading post, the camp store, bought some candy, came into the cabin, sat down, and we're talking, they're hanging out. And I didn't have any money because I was a poor college student, and so I didn't have the ability to get my own candy. And I saw one of my campers, and they had Sour Patch Kids. And I love Sour Patch Kids. And I had to really think of my, to myself, I was like, those look really good. I really want Sour Patch Kids. And so I walked over to them. They're all sitting there talking, having a great time. And I walk over to them, and I sit down, and I join them. And I look at this camper. He's like in seventh grade. And I say, hey, counselor tax. <laughs> counselor tax. I'm your counselor, and this is the payment. And they looked at me, and they're like, no. Why would I? And I said, nope, up, 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 up. Counselor tax. And I literally stole candy from a baby. I literally stole candy from these teenagers. This may not be a good thing to say now that I'm a youth pastor. It may not be a good story to share. But I literally took candy from a baby or a child, a teenager. It was three pieces of Sour Patch Kids. Is it going to affect them? No. Is it probably good? They didn't have that much sugar in them? Probably. But I still stole from them. I used my power over them to take advantage of them. And that's a silly example, forgive me, but not all examples of powers taking advantage of individuals are silly. Not all examples of people in influence and leadership using and abusing people that they're supposed to lead and care for. Those aren't silly examples. And just as I said, all of us are leaders in our own way, so all of us have the ability to be a, a jerk like Preston was and steal candy from their campers. And this is something, again, that's, that's, a, that's a lesson for every single one of us because we all have influence where we are. We all have the ability to use that influence negatively. We all have ability to use the powers that God has given us in this culture negatively to take advantage of other peoples. And that is not the character qualities of the ideal leader. And that is not the character qualities that should define the church. The church is not a place to take advantage of other people. And you do not have the power or the blessing to take advantage of other people with the influence you have. And if you do, for you, it is sin. My first point is that this perfect king brings justice for all people. This perfect king brings justice for all people, cares for all of its people, builds up all of his people, provides a place for them to flourish under his reign. It's our first characteristic. Our second characteristic is found in verses 5 through 11. Please read on with me. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations... May he be like grass that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day, may the righteous flourish and peace abound 
till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. May his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This is a very rich psalm. And there's so much to go over in the limited time I have. But starting in verse 5, this section is full of wonderful poetic devices, wonderful illustrations that Solomon uses to communicate beautiful truths. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon. There is this sense that Solomon is asking for an eternal, this forever reign of this ideal king. In ancient times, the sun and the moon in some cultures were literally viewed as gods. They always rose. They always fell. They were always there. They would always be there. They were this symbol of eternal, infinite power. They bring heat and they bring cold. The sun and the moon are powerful devices to the ancient mind. Verse 6, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. This king is supposed to possess this, the same quality as rain when it gives life to grass. The last time I spoke through the Psalms, I talked about Psalm 90, where in that Psalm, Moses compared the frailty and the weakness of human life with grass, that in the morning it flourishes, it's this bright green, beautiful color, but by the evening as the sun rises and the heat gets greater and greater, the grass is scorched and is destroyed by the time the sun sets. And so in this psalm as well, grass is used as an example, but grass is used as an example of this king being able to feed the grass, being able to provide nourishment, provide strength, provide life to the grass. The grass is still the humans, but the rain, the life-giving rain, is the king. The king is supposed to have a reign that brings life to those he's reigning over. Another mention of may righteous flourish. There's a lot of talk on righteousness and justice. And whenever you're reading Hebrew poetry, look for commonly used words. Commonly used words in Hebrew poetry is like rhyming words in English poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't have much rhyming. It's not a rhyming poetry. It feels odd to us because our culture and our poetry is a poetry that rhymes. We find it easy to remember poetry that rhymes, but for the Hebrew writer, the Hebrew poet, they were able to connect emphasis on words that were repeated. Justice, righteousness, righteous. Justice. Look at all the times justice and righteousness are mentioned in this psalm. It is an incredible emphasis that Solomon has for this king. Continuing in verse 7, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Remember that moon 
eternal device. May peace abound forever. May this king have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the, the dust. He continues and mentions several nations, several kingdoms that would have surrounded the nation of Israel. Kings of Tarshish, the kings of Sheba and Seba, and all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Let's take a moment and talk about these different nations being mentioned. Israel is not in a vacuum. Israel was not alone in its world. There were other kingdoms and nations that surrounded Israel. There was Egypt to the south. There was Babylon and Assyria to the north and to the east. Yes, east. There was several other nations that surrounded them, even their neighbors of the Canaanites, of the Philistines, of the Moabites, of the Edomites, of the Mosquitoites, of all of these different nations. I can't claim credit for that one. I heard that one somewhere else. All of these nations surrounded Israel, and all of these nations provided a threat to Israel. War was very common in the ancient world, much more common than it might be today, as crazy as that may sound. In King David's time, in 2 Samuel, it mentioned that every year the king would go out to war. Every year kings would bring their armies out to battle other kings and other armies. Because there was no defined borders, there was no nation states, there was people groups that fought to survive. And in the grand scheme of things, Israel was a very small nation comparatively to its neighbors. Egypt to the south, an incredible superpower that still exists today. To the north and to the east, Babylon and Assyria, nations that would eventually destroy Israel existed at the time of Solomon. Solomon would have known very well of the nations of Babylon and Assyria. And then we mentioned the, the nations mentioned here. Tarshish, if you've read the story of Jonah, you'd heard of that name before. Tarshish more than likely was a kingdom all the way across the Mediterranean in modern-day Spain. And if you think about the place of Israel, Israel didn't know about the Americas. Israel didn't know about England, more than likely. It wasn't called England at that time. Israel would have more than likely had individuals, shipping, business people, traders, merchants, making it out to the kingdom of Tarshish and seeing ever after that the Atlantic Ocean going off forever and saying, guess there's nothing out there. Tarshish, the furthest extent of the influence that Israel had to its west. Then we mention the kingdom of Sheba. You might recognize that name with Solomon and the queen of Sheba coming to Solomon's palace and to the temple and asking questions and Solomon getting the answers right for this weird little pop quiz that the queen of Sheba has for him. Sheba was a nation that more than likely existed to the south of Saudi Arabia in modern-day Yemen. And they wouldn't have known, and if you go down to that point, and you go down to the end of the Arabian Peninsula, you get the Indian Ocean, this big expanse of water. Guess there's nothing over there either. So we got Tarshish on this side, Sheba on this side. We get the kingdom of Seba, which more than likely would have been the kingdom to the south of Egypt. 
in modern-day Sudan. More than likely, was still used, would have still lived on the Nile River. And Solomon would have known about this kingdom. And he would have looked past that, and there's nothing but rainforests and barbarians and tribes and, and, and crazy people and scary people that he said, I don't even want to go down there. Too much work. I don't want to deal with that. And so we get the borders of the influence that Israel had, and then Solomon includes all the other nations. May all kings, what are these kings supposed to do? Fall down before him, and all nations serve him. This is a characteristic that I think we may not be able to fully understand the beauty of it because of the place of the country that we live in today. Unless you are, let me back up for a bit. Last year, the United States was able to get out of a major decades-long conflict in the Middle East. And before that, there was conflicts and wars, and you get to, you know, your Vietnams and your Korea and World War II and all these different major wars that the United States was involved with. But if we're actually going to stop and think for a second, how much has your life, unless you are a veteran who toured in the Middle East or you're a family member of a veteran, how much was your life directly influenced by the conflicts happening in the Middle East? Not very much. Now, again, this is different for someone who is a veteran or has family members of a veteran. Your life was greatly influenced by this. But for those of us who don't have any relations to a veteran for the Middle Eastern campaigns that happened over the past couple decades, that conflict didn't affect whether or not you could go to the store. That conflict didn't affect whether or not you could go get gas at the gas station. That conflict didn't affect where you're going to go to eat. In many ways, that conflict may have not affected whether or not you're going to sleep at night, whether or not you're going to put wooden stakes surrounding your house to defend yourself. We are very disassociated from this feeling that Israel had for the entirety of its kingdom, a feeling of constantly being surrounded by these massive nations that could sweep over them like a flood that could destroy them in the matter of months. The kingdom of Israel is about the size of New Jersey. It's not a very big place. And every single book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see conflict after conflict. The very first time Israel got into the promised land, the book of Joshua, conflict. We go from book of Joshua to the book of Judges, where God's people were constantly being attacked by foreign invaders of the Midianites and the Philistines and all these other nations, conflict. We get to 1 Samuel and these battles with the Philistines, conflict. We get to 2 Samuel and the unification of the kingdom, conflict, war, pillaging, death. Israel was surrounded by war. And how did the nation of Israel end up in the Old Testament? By being destroyed by Assyria and Babylon. Death, war, destruction. Their life was defined by the conflicts of nations around them. And here, this king has all of these nations serving him, bringing gifts to him, making peace prosper. 
The second characteristic of this ideal leader in the eyes of Solomon is that the perfect king brings peace and prosperity to his people. The perfect king brings peace and prosperity to his people. This king in Psalm 72 is not a warrior king. It's not a warmongering king. If you're looking for a royal psalm that talks about a warrior king, you can look at Psalm chapter 2 after the sermon, of course. That tells very much of the nations rising against God and his king and, and God laughing at the nations and destroying them. And that's a very fundamental aspect of, of a king, but not in Solomon's view. Solomon is saying, we've had so much war. We've had so much death. We want peace. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want my people to fear that tomorrow they're going to be attacked by some foreign invader. The characteristics of this ideal king, again, this character of not a warmonger, of not someone seeking out conflict, but somebody seeking out peace amongst its neighbors, amongst its, those that is influencing. And there's application there for us today. Again, we're all leaders in our own way. We all have our own influence. And much as was true for the character of this king, so it must be true for the character of us, that we are supposed to exhibit a characteristic of peace in our own influence. I've seen a lot of Christians, and I will say Christians, Christians, non-Christians, whatever, feel the need to be very, I can use the term militaristic in our thinking of the world around us. It's easy to see it on platforms like Facebook where you see individuals talking of battles, of wars with those they may disagree with. And there's room for conversation. There's room for interacting with disagreeing topics. But our Christians... Today, are Christians today viewed as peaceful people? Or are Christians today viewed as revengeful? Saying it like it is, because that's just the way it is. How are we viewed by, and does that affect, is that a character Issue. Again, yes, there's need to have good conversations and to disagree in a way that we can know what the truth of God's word says. But a necessary characteristic for us is to be people that listen, to be people that are peaceful, to be people that interact with ideas of those around us and your spheres of influence, people at your work, people in your home, people in your families. I mean, after all, Thanksgiving is a great holiday, but it's also the time where everyone's wondering who's going to say the comment that's going to cause a family argument again like last year. Are Christians today characterized as people of peace or characterized as people of in their own way, in our own way, as vengeful, as militaristic, in our thinking. I don't know that answer for you, but it is something to, to think on. 
The psalm continues, and in chapter 12 through 14, we get another reminder, in case we forgot, of the necessity of justice and righteousness for this king. For he delivers the needy when he calls, verse 12, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. For oppression, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Precious is the blood of the weak, the needy, and the vulnerable in the sight of this ideal king. They aren't a nuisance to society. The least of these are not a nuisance that need to be pushed to the side, forgotten about, and left to their own devices. No, the king, this ideal king, has a character of love that seeks out these people, that helps people where they're at. In case we forgot. The third quality is found in verses 15 through 20. Please read to the end of the psalm with me. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The ending of this psalm kind of is, acts as both a summary of what we've already talked about. Again, we, we hear similar themes being repeated. This king should be giving a life-giving reign. The, the, the kingdom is flourishing and multiplying and growing and getting stronger. This king should be getting gold from, from Sheba and, and all these different things. And then we get to verse, the verses I want to talk about are verse 15 and verse 17, specifically the second half of both. Let me read this part to you. Verse 15. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. Doesn't sound too weird. Pray for your leader. That's a good thing. But... Those phrases are actually very different phrases than you and I may see here. We see them say, pray for your leader. Do your best to help your leaders do a good job. We read that because that's what the English looks like. But if we look at the Hebrew, this phrase has less of a praying for a human leader, but this phrase in different times in the Old Testament is used by individuals worshiping God. May prayers be made for God. May blessings be given to God. May we worship God through our prayer. May we worship God through our blessing. This phrase has a religious tone to it. A religious tone. A, a tone of reverence. A tone of holy fear. A tone of worship. Well, that sounds a little weird. It's just some human king. Why are we worshiping some human King, isn't that idolatry? Come with me to verse 17. 
May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. This is the part I want you to look at. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Does that, those, do those two lines sound familiar to you? If they don't sound familiar to you, allow me to switch really quick to the book of Genesis chapter 12. This is when God is talking to Abraham for one of the first times. This is known as the call or the blessing of Abraham. Please let me read this to you. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do those two verses sound similar? Does Genesis 12, specifically verses 2 through 3, sound similar to Psalm 72, verse 17, part B, where it says, May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. What Solomon's doing here, Solomon is praying Scripture. Solomon saw Genesis chapter 12, this this promise that God gives to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants, Abraham's nation will be a blessing to all the world. And in Psalm 72, we get a repeat of similar words. Again, repetition is important in Hebrew poetry. What we're getting here is a connection between the meaning of the blessing of Abraham and the meaning of Psalm 72, verse 17. And Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the blessing of Abraham has all throughout the history of the church and even before the church been interpreted as a prophecy that would one day be fulfilled with the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Abraham would be a blessing to the world by bringing the Messiah the Savior, the Anointed One, the One that would come one day and destroy the evils and the enemies of this world and bring God's people in and other nations falling before God's people and service and worship of this Messiah. The third quality of this king is the perfect king is God as king. Solomon is trying to communicate something very powerfully to us. Again, Solomon, he had a great reign, but he also had a hard fall. Falling into idolatry and worshiping horrible, detestable gods of foreign wives that he married as a way to secure his nation. Solomon was the perfect king, the Israel's golden age. And at the same time, Solomon was human. Solomon fell. And as I've been saying, leaders are human. Leaders are sinful. Leaders have the daily battle of fighting against the temptation to use their influence for their own selfish gains. And God knew this when he put Israel into a position where it would have a king leading it. And this is why he promised to David that there would be, from David's line, a king that would reign forever. This is why Solomon knew of David talking about this to him. And he looks back at Genesis 12 and he connects the dots and says, this king, this eternal king, will make the nations call him blessed. 
And then we get to the New Testament, and we get to this king being revealed in the man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth. A man who came to earth completely man and completely God, possessing the entirety of humanity, it's minus sin and the entirety of the divinity of God, living a perfect life in this world, never sinning and constantly promising and saying that he is the king. He is the king of Israel that the Old Testament talked about. His people rejected him, and the price was death on the cross. And then, three days later, he rose from the dead. And in, the, and in so doing, paid the penalties of your sin and mine. Satisfying the justice of God, needing the payment for our sins, providing us an opportunity and a future promise of peace with him as king. All of the characteristics in Psalm 72 match the characteristics of Jesus Christ as king. And so the qualities we have here, the qualities of justice and the qualities of peace are qualities not just commanded because we're leaders in our own places, but commanded because our God showed us what it's supposed to look like. And this reminds us of the commands of loving your neighbors, praying for those who persecute you, turning the other cheek. The commands of Jesus that he gave to us and that we are supposed to live in this world as leaders, as leaders. To finish up here soon, as I mentioned earlier with the opening question, we've all been disappointed by leaders, and we all will be disappointed by leaders. More than likely, at some point, you will be disappointed with me. You will be disappointed with leaders in this church. You will be disappointed by leaders in your community. You will be disappointed by leaders all around the world. It will happen because leaders, though there's a necessity for a character quality, they're still sinful. They're still sinful just as much as you are. They're no more or less sinful than you. Leadership in this world will never be perfect. But that is why God didn't let us, didn't plan that one day we would be led just by humans. But we would be led by Jesus Christ, the perfection in his character through his divinity, through his completely being God. And that gives us our example of how to live today. To sum it all up, if you don't listen to anything else today, listen to this. The perfect king will come and bring a perfect reign with him. God has promised a time when we would not be disappointed with leaders. When we would not be angry with our leaders because our leader is perfect. Our leader is God. All forms of leadership in some way have their disadvantages. The only leadership form that doesn't have a disadvantage is a monarchy with God as king.
And with that, the perfect king will come and bring a perfect reign with him so that we can worship him. We can live in a place of peace and we can honor our God as our eternal king and finally be satisfied with leadership.